0: The uh, lecture I'm presenting today is part of a project which is called Unexplored Agencies, which is devoted to uh, reanalysis of the uh, agency of artifacts when they are uh, acting, so to speak, in a ritual context. So ideally, it is a sort of continuation of both the Naven book and the Prassi. I want to speak about uh, Donna Sebastiana because I've sent uh, two days ago to Elizabeth, uh, who didn't receive it, uh, uh, a, a mail uh, saying that I, I wanted to change my title. What I want to speak about today is on one side ritual language and on the other side what kind of agency is uh, the uh, abduction results from the abduction of something like speaking. So uh, this is a special case, so to speak, in this general exploration about artifacts in ritual contexts. So, to speak about that, I wanted uh, to get back to my HUNA uh, ethnographic experience, and I'm picking uh, up some uh, disquieting details, so to speak, that uh, stay in my memory. Well, it is then, uh, on my own work, an exercise of rethinking so to speak, this uh, shamanistic, wonderful tradition of the Kuna Indians, which is one of the most complex and rich in all uh, the Amerindian world. Well, the exercise of rethinking anthropology has become from Edmund Leach's famous book to the important works of Mary Nils and other colleagues, more and more frequent in our disciplines. And there are certainly good general reasons for this on both sides of the channel and on both sides of the ocean. Because more and more often we anthropologists not only express different approaches of the same subject, we also tend to have different approaches of different topics and different objects of study. The fragmentation that that can result of this way of conducting our debates can generate a difficult situation for anthropology in general as a scholarly discipline. I am concerned, as many colleagues, about this situation. However, the reason I have chosen to rethink today some aspect of my work on Kuna Shamanistic tradition is not a general one. It is not linked to a theoretical disquiet about epistemology, rather it is generated, first of all, by a reflection on ethnography and even on ethnography as a personal experience. Well, every anthropologist, even long after fieldwork and after many years of work on a specific tradition, has, no matter where they are stored, in his or her memory or in some remote file of his or her computer, some ethnographic problems that resist interpretation. She or he might have tried repeatedly to find a partial solution to these problems. She or he might have dedicated to them a couple of papers. Such problems would stay with her or with him, silently raising old unanswered questions and often joining. For me, one of these questions is closely associated to a specific ritual action and to the use of a specific image. I have many times seen a kuna shaman who, preparing for chanting a therapeutic text, put on one side of the hammock where the ill person is lying a certain number of statuettes representing his auxiliary spirits. But one day, one of my masters, my beloved Enrique Gomez, preparing for chanting the chant destined to the therapy of what the kuna today call madness, locura, put among other helpers or auxiliary spirits a certain number of statuettes representing white people. This is one, this is another one. and they come from a box like that. Why were they there? I received in that occasion that typical answer that all the ethnographers know about. These figurines are there because this is the right thing to do, said Enrique Gomez, and his face meant that he was not accepting any other question on the subject. I had learned, soon after my arrival, that white spirits were Niagana bad spirits, and very dangerous beings. Later, when translating the chant with the help of his son Placido, I was told that they were one of the possible incarnations of the jaguar of the sky, a being that in Kuna tradition is conceived of as the paradigmatic enemy of human beings. Why then their images were put among the helpers of the therapists. What was their function? What was the specific job they were supposed to do there? Well, there might be a way to shortcut the intricacies of an ethnography. Often, often, there, is the, the, there are these possibilities. And one, of course, could say, like Michael Witawczyk did, that these statuettes are there to produce a mimesis of the enemy in the sense of Walter Benjamin, and in this perspective they could represent a sort of symbolic revenge by the Kuna against the white invaders. By manipulating the image of the white man, so runs the argument of Tausik the Kuna shaman is able to catch the power of his antagonist's symbolically, just like, for instance, a voodoo priest, for instance, in the description of Alfred would do using Catholic iconography during a ritual in Ahiti. Or just as, in West Africa, a possessed Songhai catches the power of a French colonial administrator by taking up his image, as Paul Stoller has reported so brilliantly. Using the image of a paradigmatic enemy in a context of sympathetic magic, Tausig has argued, the Kuna have found a way to assimilate and ritually tame their enemy. Well, some years ago I have written a paper against this interpretation and roughly I had two arguments. The first was that, I mean, what was a bit... I was an easy about, was that was an obvious move. Of course, there is a touch of truth, there is a point there. But at the same time, if you want to confront the ethnography, then you, you, uh, you see that uh, this kind of argument simply does not enable us to distinguish between ritual and non-ritual uh, representation of white people. There is a splendid small book by Keith Basso called Portraits of the White Men among the Plains Indians. And there you have a, a, a fantastic anthology of cartoons, for instance, uh, 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 drawn by, by plain Indians about, uh, about uh, white people. It is very amusing and, and really rewarding. I mean, it is a very nice book. There is not one single ritual representation the white people. Okay. Then my second argument was that, after all, there was also a theoretical reason to be unsatisfied because to say that a ritual act belongs to sympathetic magic, a concept that one can trace back to Fraser, is to mobilize a hasty label not to find a solution to an ethnographic problem. What is sympathetic magic after? how it works. One would need something more specific, some richer ethnography, to understand the complexity of this ritual tradition. And I am unhappy to say this ethnography is not in the book of Michael Taussig. It is really very hastily treated. To sustain my argument against Taussig at that time, I had also found a particular Kuna concept first step, so to speak, to get back to ethnography, the idea of pilador or caludor which indicates, with a single word, a sort of strange category uh, making one of two contraries, so to speak. So, for instance, uh, a caludor is uh, both a killer and his victim. So, this is uh, they are both Kaludor or Pilador. And it is true that in Kuna Shamanistic tradition the definition of the supernatural itself is connected with the idea of the conjunction of contradictory features. An animal, a tree, even a human being becomes seen as an instance of the supernatural only if it, they also acquire the nature of other beings and many shamanistic chants attempt to see the supernatural aspect of visible things, or beings, precisely trying to trace back the original sequences, so to speak, of transformations that have generated an object or a person in the supernatural. Well, by analogy, one could argue that in the historical process during which the real enemies of the Kuna have become new invisible things or new invisible beings, the white spirit had become simultaneously planted with animal, good and bad, magical here, and pathogenic spirit. Again, it was not entirely wrong. I still believe that there is a point here. However, I later I later retorted to myself after the paper was published, that these statuettes were representing helpers of the shaman, not just members of a general class of ambiguous supernatural beings. My interlocutors offered not only a cosmological comment about the white statuettes, they also attributed an agency to them they see and they speak. To explain their ritual use, one would need to understand then not only their hybrid nature in general, but also the specific link that connected them to the person of the Shaman. So, how to construct? How is mimesis in the Walter Benjamin in sense is constructed here? How it is done? It is so easy to see that everywhere, but probably the most interesting thing is What are the forms of thought mobilized in the construction of this mimetic uh, figure? I realized then that the explanation of this detail required a wider itinerary of thought. To find a solution, I had to get back to the kind of question I was posing and to reformulate it differently. First, there was an historical argument to make Certainly, the spirit of the white people was not a detail in the Shamanistic tradition. Its use was neither an isolated episode nor was it really recent. Nordenskjold, in 1927, had already seen similar representation of these uh, <coughs> similar representation of the white people. This comes from Göteborg and from the from the work of Nordenuskjöld and this one too. And maybe it was also possible to get further and think to the entire Kuna tradition as having crystallized around the image of the white person. The Kuna have proven to be great fighters. In the Amerindian world They are famous for having been the people who would not kneel to anyone, as James Howe has called them, inhabiting a region of great strategic significance, uh, both sides of uh, uh, Panama, the Atlantic and the Pacific. Since the beginning of the 16th century, the Kuna have found themselves caught up in other people's schemes and other people's wars, attempting on their part to trade and ally themselves with one side or another without giving up their independence. Repeatedly subdued, they have each time rebelled and broken free, even in the twentieth centuries. Spaniards, Scots who had a colony there, briefly for two three years, Panamians and other westerners, including gold miners, merchants, missionaries, and the authorities of the Republic of Panama, founded in 1903, have all wanted to conquer the Kuna territory but, well, they, of course, they did not succeed. (coughs) Uh, The Kuna always fought back until the treaty that followed their armed conflict with Panama uh, police in 1925. Even today, that treaty warrants to the Kuna their precarious and hard-won political autonomy, and it represents for the Kuna, given the historical context, a remarkable success. Okay, so this is something which has been there for a long time. But then I soon realized that an historical perspective is necessary, but not sufficient. There is also a more general question about the ways we anthropologists are able to interpret silent images and their role in ethnography. The Kuna Shamans and Chiefs can be quite eloquent about the white people and the various conflict that they had with them. However, on the form of these white statutes, on the contrary, it has proved, proven difficult to obtain any articulated comment. What is important about them is not the form, but the matter they are made of, said once by Chamel, referring to the balsa wood, of which they they are made. On their form referring to white person, as I have said, I was offered a remarkable silence. This kind of silence raises epistemological questions about the possibility of an anthropology, of images. They concern the relationship of anthropology with the history of art, how aesthetic values relate to the ritual uses of an image. Might be one question. They might touch the background of pragmatic analysis of enunciation in a, in a, in a ritual chan, chant like, like this one. In other cases, they might modify the theoretical interpretation of ritual action and the kind of religion thought, religious thought it implies which role the invention of a fictive speaker or observer or thinker can play in establishing a literal link to the world of the dead, for instance. So, there are many questions that uh, an anthropology of memory founded on the decipherment of images might uh, uh, connect with uh, with these problems. In general, if I can just try to to formulate this in in another way. Here there is a critique in the way we fabricate ethnography, so to speak. We always expect a sort of of synthesis of a local discourse about societies and and, and, uh, history and mythology and this and that. And uh, uh, we don't look uh, close enough to uh, silences and images. Sometimes images might tell what is not formulated as were, or in a different way. I won't dwell here on the many different paradoxes that the development of an anthropology of art might generate today. Here, let me simply state a number of decisions I've taken about what is usually called the anthropology of art. My starting point here is that an iconographic tradition is not only made of material images but also by a family of logical operations that designate the modalities of the use of these images. Take for instance this uh, Piero della Francesca, this resurrection, in order to understand this image, to read it correctly, so to speak, one has to refer to a number of cultural instructions. These instructions can range from the sheer interpretation of depth and implicit movement to the understanding of the ideal of Italian Renaissance painting, what artists and theoreticians at that time called the parer vivo the attribution of an appearance of life to inanimate images. In more more modern times, another game closer to our sensibility would be played with this picture. For instance, we would assume that an exceptional person, the artist, is revealing some hidden aspects of his personality that would be useful to understand what is hidden about our own unconscious processes. This is sort of romantic uh, psychoanalytic way to look at an image like this, the resurrection would become not only a way to affirm a belief in the Son of God, who is watching us us there, (coughs) but also a process of revelation of an interiority, an internal landscape shared by the artist and the viewer. Well, so if we become progressively aware of the fact that when we engage with an image like this, we are following not only the decipherment of a, an iconic message, but a, a, a very high number of instructions that guide our gaze, so to speak, we 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 could uh, find a news to this awareness. For instance, primitivism, which appears to be the most tolerant theory of art in what concerns the iconographies, almost anything can be considered art from a primitivist point of view, actually represents this kind of interpretation, the art, uh, work of art, very rigidly, in what concerns the game played with images. It always looks for an artist, and his or her interiority, even in situations where it becomes absurd to think in these terms. Actually, if we, want to, if we want to understand iconographic traditions belonging to cultures different from ours, then we should understand not only how iconographies vary, but also how games played with images vary. The anthropology of art, with its appropriate game, the work, the, as- the artist, the viewer, etc., would become, in this perspective, only an aspect of the, more, of the more general anthropology of images. Actually, if we go outside of the Western tradition, the official one, we find two major games played with iconographies. One is memory, and the other one is the attribution of an agency. I spent much time in studying the mnemonic use of images. When you look, for instance, at an image like this Kuna picture-writing, which is barely visible here... (coughs) Okay, sorry you will progressively discover that, this inter- that its interpretation, just like Di Piero della Francesca, entails a number of implicit rules. For instance, and this is more visible, but a bit, a, a bit disorganized, but no problem, uh, one thing that you have to, to understand is that this image that, can, that you see as a sort of general drawing like that, well, this is there is literally a, an order of reading, which is the boustrophedon, the the boustrophedon. So you you have to focus your gaze repeatedly, following a certain a certain <coughs> order, from left to right and vice versa. The link of the images of the memorization of certain words to the memorization of certain words attached to specific text and to specific condition of enunciation is another example of these implicit rules. Here, what I found, that this kind of iconography related to memory is defined not only by the group of cultures where one finds them, in America elsewhere, but also by the set of mental operations implied by the use of these Memorization techniques we, I can I can get back to the details of this relationship of uh, Kuna pictographs to the shamanistic chants actually what I have found is that they uh, always follow and uh, this is probably true in general for American writing they don't have a vague uh, and irregular. Uh, way to relate to the image, to the text. On the contrary, these texts uh, do always have a form. They are shaped in a parallelistic way. And you discover that the graphic part, the iconic part, always translates variations and never transcribes repeated formula. So you have there a, a, a relation very specific to the form of a text. So in order to understand picture writing you have to stop thinking that all all what is to be known is in the image or in in the chant. Actually it is in the relationship between the two that the text uh, emerges, really (coughs) emerges. Well, I think that in order to understand my Kuna problem understanding the relationship between form and matter and deciphering and agency, <coughs> not a discourse about them. To understand what the image does to replace the silence which accompanies the retro gesture, one would need to understand what is not only the iconography but the family of logical operation associated to the images. So, what is the universe of the object to which an agency and subsequent subjectivity is attributed? So, the argument runs like this. I found uh, what uh, what family of logical operation are related to a specific game or non-Western game with images with memory. Now I'm asking What is the universe, the family of logical operators, that relates to another game played with images in non-Western cultures, namely the attribution of an agency? Once the problem is reformulated in these terms, the reference to Alfred Gell's great book becomes inevitable. Gell has argued that it is a general human fact that we tend to attribute in many social contexts a status of living beings to inanimate objects. Almost fifteen years ago in Art and Agency, Chen has shown that the analysis of this fact can provide for new perspective in the anthropology of art. Thanks to him, we can now study primitive artworks not only as expressions of an aesthetic thought but also as ways to establish specific social relations among human beings. Today we can pose new questions and try to outline a new approach to the concept of agency. The first group of questions might concern the nature of the actions that might be attributed to objects in social life. When Jen wrote about an agency attributed to fetishes or divinities, he tended to use a rather uncodified concept of action. His main example concerns an African male fetish which is supposed to ritually (coughs) realize a revenge. During this ritual, the ability to kill, which resides in the body of a young hunter, magically passes on the fetish, giving it the strength to replace the person and to punish an enemy in its behalf. Gell's analysis of this ritual is still very suggestive and well-known. I mean, the idea is that the uh, the, uh, uh, sacrifice of a piece of wood will progressively make the the, the capability, the, the ability to kill of the enter, uh, will be transferred in uh, to the object. So there is always this idea of an agent and a patient, so to speak. However, violent action is far from being the only activity that human societies attribute to magical objects. A very wide range of different actions is currently attributed to this kind of representation. Language, imagination, inference, perception, affect, or even the sheer capacity to share experiences with human beings are among the most important and common of them. The existence of this wide range of possible ways to express an agency through a symbolic object certainly has a consequence on the definition of the concept itself. If there are many ways for an object to act as a person, we need to pose new questions about the nature of its agency. Thus the type of agency attributed to an object influence in any way is fictional identity. Is an identity generated by a simple exchange of glances between a human being and an artifact the same as the one that might be generated by a fictive conversation or by a shared emotional experience, Is the type of agency attributed to objects logically related to the nature of the action attributed to the object? And this is the first group of questions. A second group concerns the context and the network of social relationships in which (coughs) an agency might be attributed. Well, and there is an important problem, I would would say. In this book, Gell constantly refers to a kind of Spontaneous anthropomorphism that we constantly experience in everyday life. His perfect example is his dialogue with his old Volkswagen, whom he encourages and abuses when it refuses to go faster, for instance, in a, in a highway. This kind of anthropomorphism is very common in everyday life, but it is also highly unstable. It is a fragile state of mind as it is constantly subjected to critical examination. Does this familiar concept of anthropomorphism enable us really to account for more complex, stable and counterintuitive identities embodied by inanimate objects in context of such a ritual action or a plane? What we need in order to understand these cases and the kind of suspension of, belief, of disbelief in the color in words that they imply, to look closer to the mental operation underlying this kind of elaborated anthropomorphism, actually, Jell always thinks of the relationship between the object and the persons as a mirror relationship. One mirrors the other. Notice that this is true also when Jell speaks of work of arts or ritual objects as form of a distributed I, Cézanne paintings and the various objects where an Indian god is thought to be present are all instances of a unique subjectivity, even if this subjectivity may take a sort of an extended form. My hypothesis is different. is that in ritual situations, the object ceases to entertain a dual relationship with the person or with the supernatural being represents. Within a ritual context, and I shall try to show this on my Kuna example, it might become more complex than a mirror image of the person or a double. Actually, if we go back to the nail fetish first example used by Jell, I did this in a paper some years ago, and, and we look at the remarkable recent ethnographies that have been done on this subject especially by MacGuffin, an American scholar, we discover two things. One is that a n'kisi, even when it has eyes, a nose, a mouth, a glance, threatening glance, for instance, is never the representation of a person. MacGuffin makes it very clear that an n'kisi rather is to be seen as a place where different substances, each of them related to a specific being, meet. The Enchisi, adds McGuffey, is the representation of this plurality. The best metaphor for Nkizi is basket, not figure. His conclusion is that such an object is not a symbol replacing an individual being, but a plural, figure. And and he concludes, uh, a representation of this kind is, I quote, a statement of relationships, a way to represent a multiple being, or more precisely, a set of ritual relationships established between different beings. So the relation is not one to one, it is one to many. So the second thing that we might learn from this revision of the ethnography is that the agency attributed to the Inchisi may be expressed in more specific terms than just action, get there and kill this guy for me. On one side, we have things said to the artifact as an addressee. As you will remember, the servant the w- would address and say you will do for me this or that act of revenge. But on the other side we also have features expressed only in visual terms. The fact that a particular fetish can act in a particular moment as someone can be for instance expressed by the presence of a mirror as uh, as an iconic here was the mirror. As an iconic indication, to be more precise, I mean, one needs one need the object to take up the identity of this elephant, and the mirror does exactly this. I am into it, so to speak, and you have me in your person. So, visually, this is the, the way to establish a link of identification. And there is nothing in what is said that indicates that the relation is established. To be more precise, these iconic indications can be of two sorts. They can refer to presence, substances, wood, blood, crystals, uh, even bones, etc. Or to mimesis, threatening gaze, expression, implicit movement. Yeah. So from the methodological point of view, yes, this re-reading or rethinking of uh, uh, Jane's example might lead us to a series of new distinctions between what is said and what is offered to seeing as presence or as my nieces. This revised model might enable us to understand more precisely the of agency and the kind of intriguing identity which is attributed to the white helpers of the Kuna Shaman. In other words, we know now that if we want to understand the relationship between the person and the artifact within a ritual context, we should look at three different aspects of the ritual situation, what is said to the artifact and what is visually represented through its form as two distinct aspects of its imputed identity. We know that form, manises, has to be associated with matter presence, and that what is said about all to the artefact is not the only level of interpretation. This is the kind of complexity that I was arguing for before. Uh, uh, this, uh, I was arguing for an ethnography complex enough that would allow us to read both words and images, so to speak, and the relationship between them. Furthermore, we might start to understand that there is a possibility that the two levels might not coincide, what is offered to be seen and what is said. We also know that the object does not necessarily entertain a one-to-one relation to the performer of the ritual, their relation can take more complex forms. Well, with this new methodological indication in mind, which I did on the first example of uh, produced by GEL, so it is, of course, not only a reflection of an African example of agency. It is an experiment, so to speak, and an exploration on the premises of gel thought. This is the idea, the idea is to revise this way to uh, look at agency. Let us now get back very briefly to Kuna ethnography and to the chant of the demon, the shamanistic text devoted to the therapy of locura, the madness. Do I have... Ten minutes or...? Or Ten minutes. Even, 10, 10, more. 15. even, even more or Maybe no? Ten minutes. Okay, so I skip things. This chant is, uh, <coughs> it is, it is, um, three thousand uh, verses, and so I cannot really uh, <laughs> give you, uh, uh all the, uh, the substance of it. But um, let me uh, distinguish between at least two aspects of this chant. It is, and um, one part is the narrative one, it is a story, and it is a story unsurprising, so to speak. It is about a soul which uh, was lost somewhere, and the shaman is flying in the supernatural <laughs> beyond the light of the sun, and just to Uh, uh, identify and catch this soul and restore it uh, to the body of someone. (coughs) What is much more surprising is that uh, this chant is also, every step of the story uh, calls for a redefinition of the person of the chanter and a sort of transformation of (coughs) him. So there is, so to speak, a narrative part and a reflexive part. It is all the time the shaman is uh, referring to the shaman at the third person. He would say, the shaman is chanting now, the shaman is saying this and that. So actually, the result of this situation is that you have two identities. One is the shaman I am speaking about, and and the other one is me saying that, so to speak. So you have this uh, progressive multiplication of shamanistic uh, identities. So, let us now get back to the statues. We know about their role in the narrative. They travel and since they are seers, they reveal the invisible part of reality. They make things appear. By their gaze. But if we ask ourselves what role they play in the reflexive part of the Niagara, the part that describes, it sets, to say so, the right condition of enunciation, we will have to pose a different range of questions. What role is played by the statutes in the definition of the speaker? What is the field of intersubjectivity that emerges, that emerges between the statutes and the enunciator? In order to understand this point, actually, I had to get back <coughs> to, a part, to a part of the text where um, I, I've never published about, where you have a sort of a progressive assimilation of the statue to the speaker. The statue is painted, and then it is dressed like a man, then it is said that it is a living being, And only then the statuette will speak just like the ritual chanter. From the moment since the shaman says, you will now say exactly what I say, the statuette is the shaman and the shaman is the speaking statuette. Speaker and statuette are the same. But this is the djelian way to look at it. My argument is that in a ritual situation the, 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 the link of identification between the person and the statuette, or the ritual object, actually ceases to uh, function as a mirror image and starts functioning, functioning as a crystal. Which is to say that instead of ca- capturing uh, one a replica of the image of the person, the object will capture several partial identities of the, per- of the celebrants of the retroaction. So, we pass from the mirror image to the uh, crystal. And actually, speaker and statuette are the same. However, this is true only from the point of view of the words spoken by the child. From the visual point of view, the statue is also a white man. What we find here is a complex series of contradictory identities defining the artifact. The figure is not a person, but a shaman through the words spoken, a multiple supernatural being as defined by the matter, it is done with the presence, and the white spirit by its form. To use the terms we have proposed in our model for interpreting the subjectivity of an artifact, we can say that form, mimesis, matter, <coughs> presence and word do not coincide in the case of Kuhner statues. The word designs an identification with the shaman, but the form des- designates an identification with something else, with the white spirit. The Kuna figurines are in this respect similar to the African Nkisi, they constitute a statement of relationships, not portraits of a specific individual being. <coughs> so, this work of the unexplored agency of the Kuna statuettes leads then maybe to Three short conclusions. The first solves the the Kuna problem and answers the question we have posed about figurines. Evil white spirits are on the side of the therapist because they are included in a series of contradictory beings that constitute the plural image of the shaman. They are part of his ritual identity. The second question was about the job of the image. While the, discourse in the realm of, while the discourse operates, so to speak, in the realm of binary opposition, the realm of the image is simultaneity. The image represents the conflict, the cultural conflict, not through an opposition, but through paradox. I am this and I am the contrary. I am a, a, an auxiliary vegetal spirit and a, a, an animal, pathogenic, a white person. Third conclusion, the Kuna case might be seen in this perspective as an example of a general shamanistic mode of, vit- of ritual action which would define would be defined by the acquisition of a plural identity that significantly include a number of features belonging to the experience of the patient. Shamanistic action, despite appearances, would no more appear as an exchange between rival instances, but rather as an inclusion of the experience of the patient into the ritual identity of the shaman, or more precisely, in the construction of a complex being that would include by condensation both patient, spirits and shaman Then there is the more general conclusion which concerns artifacts and their relationships to persons in ritual situations that generate a stable belief. So they, they generate a complex enough structure to establish a a sounder belief in the reality of the life which is abducted into the object. In these situations, the artifact does not mirror the image of a person. It captures several and even, as in this case, antagonistic fragmentary identities by a sort of refraction. The living object functions then not as a mirror but as a crystal. It represents relationships not simple means. Maybe the identification of this kind of relational complexity can become a first step in the overthinking of ritual action and the kind of serious fiction that it implies. In this case The exploration of the many possible subjectivities of the object could become a new way of rethinking maybe some classic topics in social anthropology.